Welcome back to the Stronger by Science podcast. In today's episode, we've got a huge update related to the good news segment, some very impressive and potentially controversial feats of strength, and dueling research reviews about fish oil and distinguishing between responders and non-responders to training. We also answer some listener questions, then we congratulate the sport of baseball for becoming interesting again. As always, thank you for listening and enjoy the show. Welcome back to the Stronger by Science podcast. This is your host, Eric Trexler. Today, I am joined by a special temporary guest co-host. His name is Greg Knuckles. Greg, how are you doing? I am doing well. How are you? I am doing well. I do have some news for the listeners. Um, This news might be hard to hear, but the good news segment is suspended indefinitely. Um, You can only have so many segments about animals being happy. Uh, yeah, the good news segment is canceled, uh, cause I was just reaching for any animal story I could find. And Greg, you were just, you were really, uh, trying to destroy the good news segment from within, uh, you, you turned it into the neutral, but usually bad news segment as much as you could. No, no, I made it the good news segment as much as I could. I found stories that had, it's it's less like every cloud has a silver lining and more like in the good news game, every silver cloud has a dark lining. And I looked for the ones with the smallest dark lining, but I couldn't leave those dark linings unremarked upon. Fair enough. But the good news is that we're not just simply abandoning the good news segment. Um, we are replacing it. In recent episodes, you probably heard uh, Greg's sub-segment called Road to the Stage, we're going to bring that front and center, really shine a spotlight on that. Uh, So, Greg, Road to the Stage, what are the updates for us? Uh, Yeah, so uh, hit a new low in the last two weeks, which is nice. Uh, I think when last we talked, I'd hit like 248.6, give or take. Uh, I hit a new low of 247.8. And my trend weight is now solidly below 250. So, uh, you know, good good objective markers of progress all around. Uh, and this week, my rate of weight loss actually trended down. So losing at a slower rate than previously. But uh, there there is actually a silver lining in that. Um, so one of the... One of the things that I think I've done poorly when trying to lose weight before is be able to accept good enough. So basically, uh, if I would deviate from what I was trying to eat, I just kind of say like, ah, fuck it, throw my hands up today. Uh, You know, I went off script, try to do better tomorrow. Um, And I think if, if I'd get like two or three of those days in a week, uh, it would completely mitigate the entire caloric deficit I'd opened up on the rest of the days of the week. Uh, so th- this past week hasn't been particularly great. Um, and, you know, just didn't have as much time to meal prep. Uh, a lot of stuff going on. Uh, but my small win that I'm pretty proud of is even when the dietary situations were less than ideal, I was still good about even if I wasn't hitting the magnitude of calorie deficit 
that I needed to to continue losing weight at the rate that I wanted to, I still ate below my maintenance calories every day. You know, so basically instead of uh, a, a complete win, still like small wins, small progress, better than no progress. Uh, and, and so that that's something I've struggled with before. Uh, and that is a skill I think I'm developing and improving on. So, uh, you know, the, the momentum slowing down is better than losing all momentum and reversing momentum. And so I, I think, you know, I'm I'm doing better at stopping the bleeding than than I've done previously. That's awesome. And you know, in coaching, I've had I've had clients where, you know it can be challenging to deal with the slowing of momentum. And in some cases working with clients, if, if the, you know, if, if the weight loss goal is really ambitious and it's pursued over a really long time, you might run into situations where weight loss has really slowed to a halt, but not yet gone the other direction, right? We're not regaining weight yet. And so a lot of times I'll have clients who are in that position and they'll say, oh man, this is terrible. I'm not making progress. We're failing here. And I'm like, let's, let's look back at the weight trajectory and you know, let, let's consider the fact that we're now maintaining a body weight that's 40 pounds lighter than we started, you know, and we're not moving the other direction. So like call it a diet break if you want, but we are the fact that we're maintaining here and not going the other direction is a win, you know? So it's always important to remind yourself of that or remind your clients of that is when they get to that point where there's some friction in the process, it's hard to make that same rate of progress or, you know, things have really stalled out. You know, it's important to remember that maintaining a huge success is still successful, you know, and, and hopefully you can get the ball rolling again when the time is right for that. Sometimes you need a little break. Sometimes you can dive right into it. But uh, but no, that that's really fantastic. Um, now, I'm not on a road to the stage. Um, been there, done that, uh, you know, competed at the absolute highest level, um, you know, went as far as any person could ever hope to go in multiple sports on the stage. And now I'm on to something bigger, not to put down your goals. That would be rude, but <laughs> I'm on the road to enlightenment. Um, so during COVID, I got pretty into secular Buddhism. And because we're so sarcastic all the time, people are going to think I'm being disingenuous here or being sarcastic. I'm not. And if you want to know how serious I am about this, um, let me put it this way. I have read three and a half books since I got into this. Greg, you've known me for a long time. I don't read. I can, but I choose not to. If I'm actually reading books, I mean, this is an unprecedented level of interest. Uh, I've never read books about anything unless forced. Uh, so I'm super into it. I'm on the road to enlightenment, uh, becoming more mindful uh, it's something that I certainly need, uh, as we've discussed on the podcast previously. Um, my natural kind of my natural pattern of cognition that has been conditioned and cultivated and practiced time and time again leads generally straight to anxiety or pessimism. Like th those are the two roads when when I have any kind of thought. Those are just the really grooved patterns that my thought process, you know, kind of follows. So uh, I very much need this road to enlightenment. 
uh, and it is the hardest thing I've ever tried to do. Uh, trying to recondition the way I think and the way I respond to things uh, cognitively and emotionally, it is the hardest thing I've ever tried. And I've always been drawn to activities that reward discipline. You know, like in high school as a wrestler, I'm, you know, not that I condone it, sitting in the sauna, haven't had a drink of water in hours, not going to drink water for many more hours. Like, you know, pushing against the the most basic urges a human body has. Like, oh yeah, me versus thirst. That's a fun challenge. Uh, bodybuilding, me versus hunger and not being able to sleep for a few months. Very cool challenge. None of that was as hard as trying to kind of recondition your mind out of what feels to be the natural inclination. So I'm on the road to enlightenment and it is, uh, it's challenging, but I'm working on it. Uh, so I'll be providing updates, but that also means that unfortunately, uh, I'm leaning into this hard. Uh, so I'm, I'm getting into the secular Buddhism. Uh, a lot of people who are into Buddhism don't eat meat. Uh, and so at, for the time being, I am not eating any meat. Uh, so the shredded chicken recipes are suspended indefinitely. Uh, so Greg, you're going to have to come up with some macro-friendly shredded chicken lasagna-type dishes. Uh, they're not going to be coming from me for a while. Um, and I've also, you know, people have come to love the really um, indulgent culinary things I've put together. And I'm abandoning that as well because I just realized I'm going so over the top uh in the kitchen chasing these kind of sensory pleasures, you know, trying to make a meal more hedonically pleasing than the previous. And I realized that, I mean, it's so over the top with the flavor profiles that I'm putting together with all these <laughs> ingredient combinations. And all of it is to chase this fleeting sensory experience that's not real, you know? So uh, I'm trying to enjoy the simpler things in life and really just kind of appreciating the ingredients for what they are, you know? So I'm not getting into these really complex flavor combinations. I'm keeping it simple. Rice and beans is like my main meal these days. So Greg, we're going to have to lean on you um, for a lot more of that nutrition, uh, or I should say cooking content. I'm, I'm still coming with the nutrition content, but the cooking is just, it's just not a priority right now. Fair enough? Fair enough. Okay, uh, what about feats of strength? Uh, yeah, so there there are actually quite a few this time around. Uh, between World Strongest Man, Olympic Trials, uh, powerlifting, USAPL Nationals was was uh, I think last weekend. So yeah, there 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 have been a lot of strong things that have happened recently. So uh, first off. I'm going to give you a small spoiler alert. If you typically watch World's Strongest Man uh, when it airs on television, which I think will be in a few months, uh, if you want to be surprised at who wins, just skip forward a couple minutes. Uh, but, okay, you've been warned. Tom Stoltman, uh, congratulations on the World's Strongest Man win. Uh, he had a uh, tight battle with Brian Shaw. Brian Shaw, I think, was going for his fourth or fifth win uh, at World's Strongest Man, but Tom Stoltman took it home. Uh, this was his first win, uh, and congratulations to him. Uh, he, I hear, did really well. Uh, I was unable to watch it, seeing as it hasn't been televised yet, but I saw the score sheet, so congratulations to Tom. 
Next. A uh, quick question before we move away from Strongman. Um, I noticed that Thor, obviously, you know, he didn't compete. He retired mm-hmm. from, from Strongman competition. Um, I don't know. It's weird because we bumped into Thor in Iceland. We went to his gym, uh, super friendly, had a great time there. Uh, he was very gracious with his time, uh, you know, kind of he was busy and still made time for us to chat and hang out. Um, I'll just cut straight to it. I'm not going to beat around the bush. Do you believe that Thor retired because of how we outangled him when we took pictures with him? Do you think he was so emasculated by the way we outangled him that he couldn't couldn't get it together for another competition uh you maybe maybe when you out angled him yeah uh, i have to admit that i i did not see it was in fact you out angled me pretty hard in a couple photos on that trip including the one that i've tried to keep off the internet and definitely haven't shared on instagram a few times for the memes uh the one that indicates that i am five foot one correct yeah i I wish he would have talked to me before he retired though because it's just the coat i was wearing was really bulky i mean it was cold (laughs) in iceland uh so i didn't i didn't mean to to go that hard and i wish that he would have just talked to me before making this rash decision but anyway go on yeah yeah so uh next feat of strength uh this is more a feat of power but we'll let it slide We've talked about uh, shot put throwers on the podcast before doing strong things in the gym. Uh, I'm blanking on his first name. Last name Kovacs, though. American thrower. Uh, gym monster. He, he's done some some crazy deadlifting. I know we've talked about him on the podcast. Uh, but now we're actually going to talk about shot put. Ryan Krauser at the Olympic trials broke the world record for the shot put, which... Just to contextualize that, the previous record by Randy Barnes had stood since 1991. Uh, I know we've talked about this general concept as it relates to throwing, but in most sports, you just think like, ah, you know, training methods are improving, new athletes in the sport, records are falling all the time. That really hasn't been the case in throwing. Uh, the male shot put world record had stood since 1991. I think the female record... Uh, is still standing and has stood since either 88 or 87. Uh, Those were some very durable world records, which roughly coincided with when uh, WADA started drug testing. You can... uh, It's a weird coincidence. You can can draw whatever inferences from that you want. Uh, But Ryan Krauser finally broke through and didn't just beat Randy Barnes' world record. He destroyed it. He beat it by like eight, nine inches, which is uh, just a a complete ass whooping in shot put. Uh, So it it is hard to overstate how momentous of a throw that was. So huge congratulations to him. All right, now moving into our bread and butter. It's powerlifting time. Like I said, USAPL Nationals happened recently, uh, and the talk of the town uh, was absolutely Taylor Atwood, and for good reason. He totaled uh, 1848.5 in freedom units, uh, or 838.5 in kilograms in the 163 or 74 kilogram weight class, uh, which is bonkers. So uh, he he already held that world record. He broke his own record, broke it by a lot. Uh, 
and <laughs> almost won. Like he, he almost totaled more. He almost totaled enough to have won the 83 class as well. And the world record was broken in the 83 class also. Uh, just to just to put in context how wild his total was. Um, it is, I think, the first 600 uh, Wilkes drug tested ever. Uh, it's a it's a Wilkes of 605 that broke uh, Andres Danazic's record that had stood since 2002. Um, and also, so USAPL Nationals, no knee wraps, uh, strictly drug tested. Under those conditions, Taylor Atwood also broke the untested with knee wraps world record total at 165. Uh, so, you know, just a absolutely incredible performance by him. Uh, also, shout outs to Heather Connor. She totaled 899 and a half pounds or 408 kilos in the 103 pound 47 kilo weight class. Uh, and that broke uh, Chin Wei Ling's record that had stood since uh, 2015. And, you know, I'm sure this doesn't matter anywhere outside of the U.S., but very, very close to breaking the 900 pound barrier, which, uh, I mean, that's that's a big total at 103 pounds. So uh, huge congratulations to her. Uh, and then so the the next ones I'm going to throw out there aren't records, but just shout outs to uh, people I know in real life who broke some big barriers that they've been aiming for for a long time. Uh, Bryce Lewis broke the 2000 pound barrier in in the total, in the 105 kilo weight class, 231 pound weight class. Uh, he's been really close to that for a few years, so uh, great to see him break through. And Jamar Royster uh, broke the 700 pound squat barrier in the 183 class, so huge congratulations to him as well. Uh, and then moving into the world of equipped powerlifting, Jimmy... I don't know if you pronounce his name Kolb or Cobb. I I think it's Kolb, but there was a football player with the same last name that was pronounced Cobb. And I think I, he played for the Jets or the Eagles, one of the two, one of the green teams. I think there's a county in Georgia that's spelled like that and pronounced Cobb. Yeah, so Jimmy Kolb or Cobb, one of the two, uh, hit probably the most impressive equipped bench press that I've ever seen. Uh, he benched uh, 1,120 pounds in single ply, which I don't know all of the details of uh, improvements in bench shirt technology that have occurred in the last couple of decades. Uh, but my understanding is that the single ply equipment on the market now is basically the same as the single ply equipment that was on the market a decade ago. But there have been some pretty huge uh, improvements in the unlimited category of gear like there's a new kind of bench shirt that's not even allowed in multiply meets like it's different I, I think it adds like more elastic stuff into the mix I don't know all the details but apparently there's way way better uh unlimited style bench shirts on the market now uh and uh Jimmy Cobb's single ply bench press record beats all of those so so it's the heaviest equipped bench press ever performed 
Uh, and I mean, the, the video will be linked. You can watch it. It's pretty clean too. Uh, there are, th- there have been, you know, over the last 15 years, a lot of equipped bench press world records with really, really soft elbows at lockout, but he controls it well, pretty solid lockout, uh, by, by equipped lifting standards, very, very solid bench. So huge props to him. Uh, and then the final feat of strength, I'm not sure what I think about it, but it's a provisional feat of strength, I guess. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so on the stronger by science podcast, we believe in teaching the controversy, uh, in all things. Uh, and that includes huge bench presses from people who haven't necessarily proved that they're good for it in competition. So, uh, an Iranian bencher named Daniel Zamani, I believe, uh, benched 337 and a half kilos or 744 pounds in the gym. And he made, he, he made it look like most strong people would bench 315. Like he blew it up and, and that's 315 pounds. It, it did not look challenging at all. And the reason I say I'm not totally sold on it is so I have sympathy for him, empathy for him, because he's Iranian and, you know, visa issues. It's hard to travel to compete. So he hasn't competed recently. Um, but the last meet where he posted a total um, or, well, posted a successful bench attempt was a single ply meet. And he benched 760 in single ply then. Uh, several years ago, like five or six years ago, is when he did his last raw meet, which was a drug-tested meet, and he benched 747 there. So has he... Wait, 747 raw? Or 474. Okay. Sorry, sorry. Okay. Yeah, <laughs> I yeah. Like, slight, I was like, what is happening? Yeah, yeah. Slight dyslexic moment. 474. Uh, yeah, yeah. So has he seen ridiculous progress over the last two years i don't know uh it would it would border on being unprecedented but it's possible uh again you can watch the video you can see for yourself he's a big fucking dude like he's clearly jacked as shit that's a very strong individual if you asked me to paint a picture of what someone who would bench 744 like like an empty bar if you ask me to paint a picture of what they might look like it would look a lot like this dude so it's certainly possible but until he puts up 700 plus on the platform i'm somewhat skeptical but that video will be linked you can watch it for yourself uh, and draw your own conclusions. And hey, hope hopefully it's legit. I mean, I, I'd love to see him and Maddox, you know. Oh, that, that would be incredible. Going back and forth, pushing each other a little bit. That would be great. So yeah, I'm I'm very optimistic that that was uh, super, super legit. That'd be awesome. Yeah, I mean, uh, a few years ago, I think Sarachev more or less retired because no one really challenged him. Uh, th- there's a part of me that fears... That if Julius Maddox benches 800, he'll say like, well, okay, I'm probably not going to break 900. I knocked down what might be the last 100-pound barrier for raw bench press. Eh, who cares? I'm done. Uh, he's had some pec issues. Maybe he'd want to get out of the game. But if there was someone else pushing him, uh, 
I mean, who who knows where the two of them could end up? So yeah, I I to be clear, I hope it's real, uh, and I hope we see even more just ridiculous bench presses in the future. Let's hope so. All right, uh, moving on. I've got a little research review, and you've got one as well after I finish up. So mine's pretty quick and to the point, um, but it's about a very common supplement, uh, fish oil. It's very common, very popular. And one of the things about fish oil is because you could mechanistically link it to just about anything, there's a lot of fanfare about fish oil and its potential applications. So you can make a me- mechanistic link to so many different things that people say, oh yeah, I take fish oil because it does this, that, and the other thing for me. And it's an interesting supplement because there might be really good evidence for one of those three things and really poor evidence for the other two. Um, but people just kind of want to dichotomize it and say, is fish oil uh, effective or not? And you really have to go outcome by outcome to assess uh, what fish oil can really do as a dietary supplement. So when it comes to lifters, uh, you know, a lot of people take fish oil just for general health um, uh, and, and wellness uh, purposes. Um, but some people take it as a lifter, hoping that it will enhance their recovery, uh, help them build muscle, help them lose fat, uh, you know, help them get stronger. And so uh, there was a recent uh, systematic review that looked at some of these lifting-related outcomes. So it was a systematic review by Lopez, Soan, and colleagues. And uh, what they did was they looked at the effects of omega-3 PUFAs, or polyunsaturated fatty acids, uh, looking at omega-3 polyunsaturated fatty acid supplementation on hypertrophy, strength, and delayed onset muscle soreness when combined with exercise. Uh, And they looked at a bunch of kind of related outcomes. So they got uh, 15 studies pulled together with a total of 461 individuals in this systematic review. Um, 14 of the studies looked at effects on muscle strength. Only six uh, looked at muscle hypertrophy. The conclusions they came to after systematically going through the literature section by section is that omega-3 polyunsaturated fatty acids, fish oil supplementation, does not improve muscle hypertrophy, uh, muscle strength, or skeletal muscle biomarkers of inflammation and muscle damage uh, beyond what you would expect to just see, you know, beneficial effects of training itself. However, in this systematic review, they did find pretty good evidence that uh, supplementation improved uh, recovery in terms of delayed onset muscle soreness and various indices of muscle function during the recovery phase. Um, And so I want to look at some of the evidence that went into this systematic review. But before we get to the really specific stuff, just starting at the beginning, when we're talking about polyunsaturated fatty acids, omega-3 polyunsaturated fatty acids, the ones that are, are most common, most notable are fish oil, okay? And that is EPA and DHA. Those are the two specific fatty acids that we, uh, that we associate with the effects of fish oil. So when you see a study on fish oil supplementation, it's likely to have some combination of EPA and DHA. And these are critical components of cell membranes. They are present in a wide range of cells and tissues throughout the body. 
Um, and, and so for that reason, you've got papers that are trying to link fish oil supplementation to, uh, you know, muscle outcomes, as we already discussed, immune function, oxidative stress, inflammation, uh, brain health, eye health, cardiovascular health, just about everything. Um, now, the reason that people would bother to supplement with EPA or DHA is because we can uh, convert ALA to both of them in a roundabout way, but that conversion is really inefficient. And, and so it, it's, if possible, it's great to get some EPA and DHA from your diet. Now, if you're just trying to get some EPA and DHA for just general health and well-being, a lot of the big national and international health organizations say, hey, shoot for like 0.3 to 0.5 grams a day of combined EPA plus DHA. Uh, and that's usually how the dosing is discussed is the combined total of your EPA plus your DHA. And if you're eating fatty fish a couple times a week, uh, you know, then, then you're, you're likely to get around there without needing any targeted supplementation. But, you know, some people do like to supplement. And of course, there's a lot of literature looking into different supplementation protocols. Um, just to make sure I don't get accused of oversimplifying here, I do want to acknowledge on the front end, you know, like I said, the dosing for fish oil, you usually talk about combined EPA plus DHA. The more research comes out, the more we're starting to see that EPA and DHA have some distinct effects. Uh, and, and so, for example, it, it, it's starting to look like EPA might be more effective for reducing cardiovascular issues. Uh, and it's also possible, not just that EPA is kind of driving the, the ship there in terms of preventing cardiovascular events, but that the inclusion of DHA might actually interfere with that. So not just that the DHA isn't doing anything, but there's, they're almost starting to imply, looking at some of these big clinical trials, that you're better off for those outcomes with EPA alone rather than the same amount of EPA with DHA along with it, uh, which is really interesting. I, I don't have a good enough grasp on that literature to get into the the details of w why DHA would be interfering there. Is it possible that it's just a government psyop to try to build positive associations around the fake news environmental protection agency? Uh, it's very possible. Um, there, there's a lot of folks saying it. I'm actually hearing it more and more uh, these days. But anyway, uh, so but but it's not it's not fair to say that because of that EPA is across the board better. Uh, you know, DHA seems to be better for certain uh, brain and eye related outcomes. So it's, it's kind of a, a mixed bag in terms of which one you want to go for. And so it's, it's really challenging. People will ask me, hey, uh, should, I, should I do EPA or DHA or both? And I, I don't really know how to answer that question without asking, well, what are you trying to do here? Um, that, that's kind of, you have to get really specific there. And if you're not doing it for a very targeted specific outcome, if it's just kind of a broad spectrum overall wellness thing, then in that case, I, I usually just go for a combination. Um, so anyway, that's the overview on fish oil, uh, but, but specifically looking at fish oil and recovery, there's actually a growing body of literature here. So, uh, there was a study recently by Van Dusseldorp and colleagues, uh, in 2020, and they did seven and a half weeks of supplementation with either two, four or six grams a day of fish oil. Uh, and just to be clear, six grams of fish oil does not mean six grams of combined EPA and DHA. 
Uh, so there is, uh, you know, EPA and DHA are kind of the active ingredients of fish oil, but there are, you know, six grams of fish oil only gives you about 4,200 milligrams of combined EPA and DHA with the product they used in this study. Uh, you have to look at the specific product you're, you're, you're intending to buy. That's a pretty high, wait, so six grams was 40, was 4.2 grams. Yeah. Yeah. That's a a pretty high potency supplement, right? Yeah. Yeah. That that's on the higher end of the range that I've seen. Yeah. A lot of them it's, it's much lower. So when you're looking at fish oil supplementation, you know, and, and there's like the ethyl ester form and there's the triglyceride form, like there's different ways to try to really condense that dosing and get the ratio of EPA DHA to total grams of oil. You can try to jack that up with different methods of, of producing the supplement. Um, but yeah, if you're looking into this, you, you got to be very mindful of, okay, if I take two grams as capsules, how much actual EPA and DHA am I getting? You know, so uh, anyway, what they found in this study was uh, that the six gram per day group uh, had more favorable uh, recovery when looking at things like vertical jump, soreness, and and also some blood biomarkers of muscle damage. Um, and so in that study, it was like, well, the six gram a day seemed to be a little bit better off uh, when compared to the two and four gram per day. The two and four gram per day, there really wasn't much of an effect. And so, you know, looking at that small study in isolation, you think, oh, I guess you got to go big or go home. But there are several other studies that have looked at various fish oil doses and have found beneficial effects when it comes to either soreness recovery following pretty, uh, pretty rigorous exercise or restoration of muscle function following pretty challenging exercise. So Joris and colleagues looked at uh, three grams per day of combined EPA and DHA. Uh, Phil Pot and colleagues looked at 1.1 grams per day of combined EPA and DHA. Um, Black and colleagues, uh, they also, I believe, were looking at 1.1 grams combined uh, and found some benefits there. Uh, there was also a couple studies by Tsuchia and colleagues uh, looking at about 860 milligrams combined. So there have been quite a few studies looking at this particular topic, including one from our buddy Grant Tinsley and colleagues. Um, And generally speaking, it it does look like there's some pretty strong evidence here that fish oil supplementation uh, can facilitate recovery from, you know, unaccustomed exercise. But the same caveat applies that that I kind of always put out there when it comes to recovery supplements. And that is, you have to, you know, when when they put a study like this together, they need to induce something that's going to really, really challenge your ability to recover, right? So they might pull you in and say, do this eccentric exercise that that you're totally unaccustomed to. We're going to, you know, ramp up the muscle damage and really just beat you up with this exercise. And that makes sense from a research context because, you need to have a problem to solve with the supplement, right? But that's not usually how we go about our training. We don't say, I'm going to go in and pick something that I'm totally unaccustomed to purely for the sake of it being hard. So whenever you look at the studies that show like, you know, a beneficial effect of antioxidants on recovery or a beneficial effect of fish oil on recovery, uh, you have to remember that your day-to-day training probably doesn't look like these uh, exercise protocols that are being utilized in research. 
also you have to recognize that your day-to-day training over time you'll become accustomed to it repeated bout effect kicks in uh, you develop a more familiarity with that form of exercise these enormous challenges to your recovery are not going to be quite as severe as what we see in these studies so uh, you know you have to keep that in mind when you look at these results you know i also wonder the degree to which publication bias and the the file drawer effect uh, would would impact this particular area of literature because I mean you know th- these aren't these aren't studies with like a 16 week lead-in period or a longitudinal training intervention I mean pretty much any human research is going to be pretty labor intensive but as far as studies in our field go th- this would be one of the kind of less labor intensive designs and the the actual thing being tested uh, is relatively cheap and easily available. So, like, I I wouldn't be shocked if there were some null some null results that people were just sitting on, uh, not for nefarious reasons, just you know, not really seeing a point of publishing them. Like, I, I'm not proposing that that has in fact occurred and that I have evidence that that occurred. But like, I mean, publication bias exists and. This this seems like an area where it would be more likely to show up than other areas. Yeah, and for me, I've got kind of a sliding scale when I assess, like, are we in, like, the red category of high alert publication bias or, like, the orange pretty high risk of publication bias? So the things that I think of are the duration of supplementation and then was there a supervised training intervention throughout you know so when it comes to studies like man uh acute caffeine supplementation you can get three lifetimes worth of caffeine powder for like 20 bucks you know so the the study cost for that if you have the testing equipment and all your funding is buying the caffeine it's a virtually free study uh and it's an acute action, uh, acute onset supplement. So you could bring in a participant for this testing. The entirety of the labor going into testing one participant in that study is, I don't know, four hours, right? So you think of a study like that and a journal is only going to make you recruit 18 or 19 people for your crossover trial. I mean, that in terms of time and money, that's about as quick and easy a study you can do. So that's like in the red zone, high alert. You got to watch out for publication bias. Yeah, that, that's people who haven't done research listening to this may not have like time intensive calibration for research uh, in the back of their head. You might have heard that in like, oh, 18, 19 people, four hours per person. That sounds like a lot of time investment, but compared to like a longitudinal training study, it's nothing no absolutely not um yeah and like my my uh my thesis project or my dissertation project it was like a solid uh 14 16 hours per participant so yeah if if you can get a participant in a crossover trial in and out in four hours which includes with caffeine like a 30 60 minute wait time where they're just kind of reading the paper like that that's that that's a quick efficient study and it's cost effective as well so when you see a study like that, you got to you got to think. I wonder if anybody did this study, found nothing. It was just like, ah, who cares? Why bother? Um, and like you said, it's not nefarious. It's just a researcher has probably 
six data sets that they ought to be turning into a paper at any given time. And it's like, uh, is this the one thing I feel most compelled to get out to the world? In many cases, it's not. Uh, and so a lot of these studies, I, this is the, a very long-winded way to <laughs> express what I'm saying, but a, these, a lot of these studies are you know, multiple week supplementation, not particularly cheap. Um, but uh, some of them have training protocols throughout the multi-week trial. Some don't. So yeah, it's kind of in that, I agree with you. It, it's it's not like it's like a 16-week really intensive training study. It's kind of in that middle ground between a really thorough training study and a single afternoon caffeine study or just cross-sectional body composition assessment type study. So it's definitely a good point. There, there could be uh, potentially an influence of, of some publication bias. But, you know, looking at, like I said, uh, looking at the individual studies, I got pretty pretty deep into this literature not not long ago because I was writing a mass article uh, about the topic. Uh, and there's some pretty solid evidence out there that, you know, taking uh, fish oil, uh, it, it seems to be pretty helpful if you're trying to recover from, uh, you know, a, a pretty extensive exercise. So uh, if you're noticing that you're in a recovery deficit and you don't seem to be recovering uh, as well as you think you ought to be, of course, you want to take a look at your diet. You want to take a look at your training to see if there's some really important stuff to fix. But fish oil might offer a nice little uh, little boost on top of that. Um, but I, one of the things I, I also want to bring attention to is there were some initial studies that promoted some excitement about fish oil as like, you know, something for body composition and strength. Um, I just don't see enough there to really get excited about when it comes to fish oil for strength, fish oil for hypertrophy, or fish oil for fat loss. Those are things people have been getting pretty jazzed about over the last five or 10 years, but I'm just not seeing enough solid evidence to, to suggest that, that you can expect anything that's really going to... Uh, meaningfully move the needle there you know uh, and that's one of the things to keep in mind when you're when you're looking at a body of literature and people are arguing does this effect exist or does it not exist and there's multiple studies on the topic that alone kind of sets your expectation level right so like uh one of the big things that researchers go back and forth about is do does resting metabolic rate specifically drop in response to weight loss. And people go back and forth, and this is in weight-stable folks. Now, if you're still in a deficit, your resting metabolic rate is probably pretty low uh, relative to baseline. But the, the big debate is in weight-stable folks after they've lost 20, 30 pounds, has resting metabolic rate dropped more than it should have based on their changes in body mass? And people go back and forth about that, but the fact that it's disputable kind of sets your expectation with regard to the magnitude, right? So if if there's 30 papers on the topic and people argue about whether or not ex it exists, at the very least, you can probably pretty confidently infer it's not a huge effect. If it was, that debate would have been settled a long time ago. That That's kind of how I set my expectations for some of those other outcomes with fish oil. If we're still going back and forth about you know, in a yes, no fashion, does that effect exist? It kind of helps you uh, set your expectations pretty low for the actual magnitude and the importance of any effect that might be observed there. Um, now, uh, like I said, a lot of times general health 
organizations, they'll say, hey, get like 0.3, 0.5 grams a day of combined EPA and DHA. Um, People who are kind of chasing the extra benefits of fish oil and going for the higher doses, they might go up to like one to three grams per day of combined EPA and DHA. Um, I personally don't like to go too far above that. And and one thing to keep in mind is, you know, I, I like getting uh, things from food whenever I can, you know, like, so I, I've written a lot about nitrate. People say, what nitrate supplement should I take? I say, just eat, eat green stuff, spinach, uh, rocket or arugula, depending on where you live. But, you know, I like to get stuff from food if I can. Um, but if you're trying to get a ton of fish oil from eating fish itself, you want to be, um, you want to pick your fish, uh, thoughtfully, you know, you want to make sure that you're not eating a ton of fish that are, uh, you know, predators way high on the food chain or bottom feeders. You want to avoid the species that are most likely to accumulate really high levels of environmental contaminants. Uh, and if you're like me, you're on the road to enlightenment, you're reading all your Buddhism books and you stopped eating uh, meat and fish, you can also get EPA and DHA from algae oil supplements. Uh, And I actually tried my first algae oil supplement not too long ago. I liked it a lot. Um, Like a lot of times with fish oil supplements, people complain about kind of like the the fishy burps that you can get, which is, that's two words that just sound awful together. Oh, I, I think it's a feature, not a bug. That's absolutely disgusting but the algae oil supplements i actually thought were really great when it comes to that i've got a lot of good positive associations around childhood memories just hanging out at the pier fishing you know with with my dad and my uncles and so very strong fish smells in the air that's so gross anything any fish associated smell uh as long as it's not like, you know, putrid and rotten, I, I think it's pretty good. <laughs> you need to read some Amazon reviews and they will uh, talk you out of that perspective, I think. Uh, any fish oil supplement, you're going to get like 10 bad reviews that are like, oh, every time I take it, I burp and it smells like fish and they, it's gross. They should have had better childhoods. I don't know what to tell you. Yeah, that's a good point. Uh, now, while we're on this topic, just the last thing I want to mention here, uh, you may have seen some really aggressive scaremongering about polyunsaturated fatty acids. So while we're on the topic, I figure at least at least acknowledge it. Um, polyunsaturated fatty acids are like the insulin of the fatty acid world um, because insulin could could theoretically be tied to so many things mechanistically. It's like there's just volumes of blog posts about it. And unsaturated fatty acids kind of fall in that same trap where it's like, I could link these to almost anything and boy, will I, <laughs> you know, and then you just, you just write volumes and volumes of blog posts. Um, now I'm certainly not indicating that polyunsaturated fats are, you know, some kind of miraculous superfood or anything like that. Um, you can make, you know, there, there are people who go back and forth about the relative value of replacing saturated fat with an equal amount of polyunsaturated fatty acid. Um, But there was a really nice uh, meta-analysis not too long ago that kind of framed it as such. So if we were to replace a given amount of saturated fat 
with an equivalent amount of different types of fats. What effects would we see on total mortality, uh, cardiovascular disease mortality, cancer mortality, and neurodegenerative disease mortality? And so you look at uh, unsaturated fatty acids in general, you see significant positive effects when it comes to all of them. Uh, monounsaturated fatty acids, uh, significant positive effects when it comes to total mortality and neurodegenerative disease mortality. Um, not much going on uh, in this particular meta-analysis with cardiovascular and cancer mortality. Um, looking at polyunsaturated fatty acids, significant positive effects when it comes to total cardiovascular cancer mortality uh, and also uh, neurodegenerative uh, disease mortality. And, and this study also looks specifically at omega-3s. Um, small positive effects on neurodegenerative and total mortality, uh, not much of an effect with cardiovascular disease mortality or cancer mortality. Uh, so this was a great paper. And like one of the things was uh, like kind of the face validity check with this uh, particular paper was like, how does trans fat do? Very bad. <laughs> trans fat, not not doing great in these particular uh, forest plots. So uh, that was like my initial validity check that, that checked out. So fish oil and polyunsaturated fats in general, they are fine. Uh, usually uh, what, I, what, I, what I personally aim for in my diet is a, you know, a moderate fat intake that's in line with most recommendations and then just an even split of saturated, monounsaturated, and polyunsaturated fat. And if you look at the guidelines for general health, cardiovascular health, even supporting testosterone production, going for a pretty even split with a low to moderate fat intake pretty much checks off everything you're looking for there. So just wanted to comment on some of the uh, scaremongering related to polyunsaturated fats. And yeah, if you're interested in fish oil, you know, like I said, dosing in the one to three gram per day range seems, uh, you know, doesn't seem like you're risking much in the process aside from the cost of the supplement. I wouldn't expect any magic, but not a bad idea to at least get some EPA and DHA in the diet. And of course, if you're going to do any high dose supplementation of anything, you might want to run it by a medical professional just to make sure that you're looking good. Makes sense to me. Cool. Man, I remember maybe like uh, 15 years ago or so when, uh, when the first research related to uh, omega-3s potentially aiding in resistance training recovery when I, I don't even know if any studies were out or if it was just people discussing mechanisms, but I remember when that was like a hot topic in the supplement game. I don't remember what brand it was. I think it was Biotest, but I've slandered them so much on this podcast already <laughs> that I don't want to confidently make that assertion because I'm sure of so many other ridiculous claims that they've made. I don't need to tarnish them with something when I'm not sure about it. Yeah. So I don't know if it was Biotest. Maybe it was, but it, it was some supplement brand. They were they were hawking, uh, you know, supposedly like superior quality omega three supplement. And their their dosing recommendations were basically, look, start at five grams per day uh, of, of fish oil, which is like a pretty that's a that's a modest dose. Yeah. Um, 
and then just ramp up from there. At some point, you will start having steatorrhea. You'll have oily poops that you have a hard time keeping in. Not good. That's that's not what you want to happen. So <laughs> so you just drop back like two grams from there, and boom, that's the optimal fish oil dose. They, they were basically proposing, which this is a very convenient thing to propose if you're making money from selling the product. It was basically take as much of our product as possible without shitting your guts out. <laughs> and there's there's no there's no risk other than shitting your guts out. Uh, but yeah, you, you're going to recover so fast. It's going to be great. You might live forever. Uh, risk of cardiovascular disease will drop to zero. So, uh, man, it, it was... It was truly great stuff. What a risky proposition for a user base that is definitely squatting and deadlifting on a regular basis. <laughs> well, and the thing is, like, that's uh, that's the kind of, like, smooth brain take you'd expect to see on, like, the bodybuilding.com forums. But that was, like, specifically in the marketing material <laughs> from the supplement company. Like, and I'm just thinking purely from a marketing perspective... You don't want to go out there and say, like, look, if you take too much of our product, you are going to shit your pants. And in fact, you want to get to the point where you <laughs> shit your pants because of our product and then just pull back a little bit. You know, like for anything else that we would recommend to people in the gym, like, you know, you want to say, like, OK, what's the optimal training volume for biceps just do curls until you shit your pants a little bit and then, and then pull back you know uh do, do curls until your <laughs> urine looks like iced tea yeah and now you've achieved rhabdo and you scale it back yeah, and cut volume by 10 percent. you're good to go oh god uh, but man great stuff <laughs> great stuff all right so i believe you have a research review i'm interested to hear this one this is a topic that um i don't want to steal your thunder but May I may I divulge the topic at minimum? Yeah, sure. So you're going to talk it's, about... It's your podcast. I'm just a guest. That's true. Uh, you're going to talk about classifying responders. And this is one of those topics that I keep promising myself I'm going to do a very deep dive into it. And I just keep kicking that can down the road. There's only There's only so many topics you can look into at a given time. But I'm curious to see what you have to share about this. Yeah, well, I, I might be about to give you license to continue kicking it down the road. Cool. Um, so, yeah, in the journal sweep this past month, a, a study popped up uh, by Islam and colleagues. Uh, the title is Repeatability of Training-Induced Skeletal Muscle Adaptations in Active Young Males. Uh, pulled up the study. And I saw that it was basically a secondary analysis of a paper published in January of last year uh, by the same, by I, I believe the same research group. Um, and so basically it, for, for both of these papers, for this one study that, that two papers have come out of, uh, they were interested in uh, seeing how reliable uh, responder classifications were. So just for some background, there's a lot of discourse uh, related to classifying how well people respond to training in general and various types of training stimulus, so or training stimuli. 
So a lot of these studies will split people into high, moderate, and low responders. Uh, they used to say non-responders. I think that terminology has fallen out of favor uh, for good reason. I don't think that's particularly good t terminology. So I'm glad that they've switched to low responders. Uh, but basically, you, you put people through a standardized training protocol for you know several weeks, uh, several months, and you see how well people respond. And then generally, you split them either just... 50-50, high and low, or into three groups, high, medium, and low. Uh, and then what a lot of these papers are interested in is seeing what factors predict how well someone will respond to training. So, you know, will, uh, just to use an example, which isn't predictive, uh, d does like testosterone level predict how well people will respond to training? Like, do people with high testosterone levels build more muscle than people with somewhat lower testosterone levels? So like that, that's the type of thing that these studies would be looking at. Um, and so, you know, th this has practical utility because if we can uh, predict based on uh, e easily measurable factors, whether someone will respond well to training or not, uh, that could be really, really valuable for, say, like talent identification for sports uh, or, you know, uh, a, a hurdle people have to exercise is, you know, people tend to like and enjoy things that they're well suited for. So, you know, I, I've talked to a lot of people who like their doctors told them like, ah, you need to go run, you need to jog like that's good for you. And like they just never got that much out of it and they fucking hated it. And then they went to the gym one time and lifted some heavy weights and said, oh, hell yeah, like this is what I was meant for. And, you know, respond well to resistance training and then stick with it. And the I don't want to make it sound like it only goes in that direction. Uh, the the reverse certainly happens uh, pretty frequently as well. So, you know, if we could predict like what type of training someone would respond pretty well to. Uh, that could be, you know, useful from a public health perspective. So, you know, there there are, um, you know, very reasonable uh, motivations for uh, researching this. But uh, t if you're going to do those studies, you want to make sure that you're actually getting useful data from them. And one of the aspects of that is you want to know that you're ac that you're accurately classifying how well people respond to training. Um, and so this whole concept has been criticized in the literature previously, and, and those criticisms have taken uh, generally two main tracks. So uh, one very, very common criticism to these types of studies are that ultimately you're just investigating typically one stimulus. So if you want to know how, if you want to know if someone responds well to resistance training, if you're designing a study to investigate that, fundamentally you're exposing them to a single training program. And I'm sure a lot of people have experienced this before. Like, you try one style of training, yeah, maybe maybe it doesn't go great for you. You try some other style of training and. You build a lot of muscle, get a lot stronger, like some other style of resistance training just agrees with you better. Uh, so, you know, ultimately these studies aren't in a generalized sense 
identifying high and low responders. They're they're identifying high and low responders to a particular training stimulus. So that's that's a pretty substantive criticism of these studies. Uh, and then another thing is, you know, you're you're probably dealing with just measurement error and regression to the mean in these studies as well. So, you know, no measurement is perfect, and um, you know, in in theory, the measurement errors are are going to be uh, evenly dispersed about zero, hopefully, as long as it's a reasonably precise and accurate measurement, but. Uh, once you've already taken the measurements, in hindsight, people who are high responders very well may be benefiting from some degree of measurement error in their favor. You know, you uh, like if you're taking, say, a biceps thickness measurement, maybe the people who are classified as high responders, maybe their biceps are measured as slightly smaller than they actually were at baseline and slightly larger than they actually were at post-testing. So you, you have some degree of measurement error, and then you could run into issues with regression to the mean. And so, you know, unless you're seeing really, really huge changes and differences between responder groups, uh, you know, just because no measurement is perfect, you need to be a little bit cautious when you're talking about splitting people into different responder groups. Uh, so So those are the two flavors of criticism that... Uh, are often bandied about when people talk about, you know, high, medium, low responders to training. Uh, but now we're getting back to the actual studies uh, that I came across recently, and they bring up they bring up another point, and I think a very, very substantive issue with this whole like research paradigm, and that is ideally. If you're classifying people as high, medium, low responders, you want to know that that is a reliable classification. So if you expose someone to a particular training stimulus and they respond well to it, if you expose them to the same training stimulus again, will they respond well to it again? If so, then you can confidently say like, okay, this person's a high responder. They respond really well to this training stimulus and vice versa. If you expose them to the same stimulus multiple times and they respond poorly both times, okay, they really don't respond that well to the stimulus. So, you know, you can get an idea of how reliable those classifications are. Uh, and that's hard to, I don't even know if you could do that with resistance training just because there are there are residual training effects. So, you know, we, we've talked about the concept of muscle memory on the on the podcast before, you know, maybe it's due to myonuclei, maybe it's due to some epigenetic regulation, maybe it's due to some microRNA stuff, like who knows, there, there are a lot of potential mechanisms that could explain the muscle memory phenomenon, but it exists. Uh, I, I think that's pretty uncontroversially true. Um, and so I, I don't even know if you could investigate this in a resistance training context, unless you are going to have people lay off of training for like two years in between exposing them to the same training bout. But that would be a really, really tough study to do. So uh, now we're getting back to these papers. These were high intensity interval training studies. So what they did uh, is they recruited a group of 10 active young males um, 
and they put them through, or no, no, the the original paper had 14, and then the follow-up study, they had all of the measures needed for 10. So 14 uh, active young males initially put them through four weeks of standardized high-intensity interval training. Uh, They measured various protein responses and also changes in VO2 max and time-to-task failure uh, in a, like, standardized uh, aerobic bout. Uh, And then they had them detrain for three months, and then they put them through the exact same training program again and took the exact same set of measures pre and post. Uh, And basically, they wanted to see how how well the within-subject pre-to-post changes would correlate from the first exposure to that training to the second. Uh, And so anything related to uh, something cardiovascular is a good, uh, that's a good way to investigate this question because you don't have the same sort of muscle memory mechanisms with cardio that you do with resistance training. Um, So the the three-month washout period uh, should be more than sufficient to get rid of the adaptations that were seen the first time around. Uh, so, you know, what were the results? Did they find that uh, training responses were reliable, that high responders to the first month of training were also high responders to the second month of training and vice versa for low responders? They found that none of the adaptations they looked at were reliable. So, uh, people who were high responders for VO2 max the first time around weren't necessarily the second time around. Same was true for time to task failure. Uh, same was true for a lot of the like protein molecular responses they looked at. Same was true for capillary density. Uh, they found that all of these adaptations were not reliable. So if they only did the first month-long block of training, they split people into high, moderate, and low responders, who knows if those would have been accurate classifications because after a second month of uh, high-intensity interval training after that three-month washout period, they would have had a completely different mix of high, moderate, and low responders. And so I think this is a... I think this is both pretty uh, explanatory for some of the confusing aspects of of this style of study. Uh, And I think that this is a very, very substantive issue with these studies. Uh, If we can't know that uh, responderness classification is a reliable thing, it's hard to take much away from these studies. And like I said, I think this is pretty explanatory. Uh, because when we when we look at the strength research in this area, where we look at research trying to see what factors predict whether someone will be a high, medium, or low responder to training, the predictors in some of those studies are all over the place. So uh, at least one paper has found that uh, high responders are more likely to have elevated ribosome biogenesis, which, you know, that's intuitive, that makes sense, but I don't think that's been replicated. Another paper found that it had to do with androgen receptor density. I don't think that's been replicated. Uh, the the early papers by Bauman and Petrella found that it was uh, myonuclei adaptations and satellite cell adaptations. Uh, I think that's been replicated once, but has failed to replicate in a few other papers. 
Uh, one more recent study found that it might have something to do with uh, microRNA. So, you know, th- there have been a lot of individual factors that in one or two studies seem to predict who will respond well to resistance training and who won't respond well. But then those factors seem to not replicate super well. (laughs) Um, And if it's just simply a factor of the studies doing a relatively poor job of reliably identifying who the quote-unquote true high responders and quote-unquote true low responders are, uh, I I feel like that would totally explain it. Uh, And honestly... This matches my personal experience as well. Like looking back over my training history, there have been times that I've responded really, really well to training, largely due to stuff going on outside of the gym. Like, am I eating well? Am I sleeping enough? Uh, Do do I have a normal life or am I working 80 hours a week? Uh, those Those are important questions that very strongly predict how well I'm going to respond to my training program. And I think, you know, taking a bird's eye view, I've got 15 years of training experience. I think I know pretty well that overall, I'm a high responder to resistance training. But if you took that snapshot of me in certain two, three month blocks of my life, you'd say, Greg Knuckles, he doesn't respond worth shit to resistance training, which would clearly not be true, you know? Um, so yeah, yeah, I think uh, I, I think these were some really cool studies. To be clear, uh, I don't think we need to put all of our eggs in this particular basket. One key weakness of these studies uh, were that the training periods were only four weeks long apiece. And so, in general, if you're trying to if you're trying to find associations in stuff, just in general. The more spread out your data are, generally, the easier it is to find correlations. So, you know, if, if the total spread of change in VO2 max is like uh, the the worst is like minus one ml per kg and the best is like plus five, you know, the, that data is not spread out a ton. If the range was something like minus three to plus 15, you may have an easier time finding uh, stronger associations from one training period to the next. So I, I do think that this study might slightly underestimate how reliable uh, responder classification is just due to how short the training period was. Um, so, you know, the, if you took these studies at face value, you'd say none of this shit is reliable at all. Uh, and I do think that that would probably be jumping to too firm of a conclusion. Uh, and the other thing is, you know, to be clear, they were looking at uh, uh, responses to high-intensity interval training. It very well could be that these things would be more reliable if this was a <laughs> a theoretical resistance training study that somehow figured out how to overcome the challenges associated with muscle memory to study this in a resistance training context. So it, it could be that, that uh, classifying responders... You have really poor reliability with high-intensity interval training, but maybe it would be a lot higher with resistance training. So, you know, that's certainly a possibility. But I, I do think that this is uh, th- that this shows another. I would say it's evidence against the utility of this type of research until we can have more confidence 
not just in the instrumentation, not just in whether people will respond robustly to the generalized training stimulus and not just a single program, uh, adding to that the fact that we don't even know if the classification is reliable. I, I do think that this should decrease our confidence in the uh, the conclusions that that we can draw from this type of research. Unfortunately, I do think that's unfortunate because I, I think the research is really cool and I think it would have a lot of potential applications if we could have a lot of faith in it for the reasons I laid out at the start of this segment. Talent identification, figure out what type, what generalized type of training people will respond well to for maybe public health reasons, yada, yada, yada. I, I wish we could have a lot of faith in this type of research, but uh, I, I think that this is another, ju- just one more factor that weakens my confidence in it. You know, that was really bold. You self-identified as a person who responds to training. Um, I appreciate uh, that you are honest about that. My my path has been totally different. I'd say in terms of genetics, I'm easily bottom two or three percent. <laughs> um but I, I simply wanted it more than anyone else. And I'm, I'm really proud of me for that, honestly. And I also developed a, a pretty foolproof training system that will supercharge gains for literally anybody. So it, it's interesting that we had these two different paths to our, our lifting pursuits. Sure, yeah. Yeah. Um, I have to share, <laughs> anytime the, the topic of responders comes up, um, I was reading a supplement paper one time and uh, they were like, okay. I I know where you're going with this. (laughs) They're like, okay, so we studied this supplement. Does the supplement work? Obviously not. Um, But like, what are we supposed to do? Just say it doesn't work? Come on, be be realistic, be an adult. So they're like, listen, did you know that there are such things as non-responders? Perfect. We got that settled. Uh, So what we're going to do is just separate out the non-responders who we're just going to arbitrarily identify as just like the people who didn't get better from the supplement. And then if we only analyze the data from the responders, clearly the supplement works. And it's like, you know, if, if you had a study where the goal was to stay weight stable... You're going to have a percentage of the group that loses a little weight. You're going to have a percentage that gains a little weight. You're going to have a small percentage that truly is dead on the money. And so it's like just doing a study like that and be like, damn, if we only look at the people who gained weight, this was actually a weight gain study when you look at it. (laughs) Uh, So yeah, I just, that's the thing that really got me interested in, in getting more into the statistical side of identification more so than the physiological side was, I was I've seen a couple papers like that. And I'm like, somebody has to step in. <laughs> like, this is this is horrific. What's happening here? Yeah. But uh, but no, that that was really interesting, and it has uh, given me even more license to delay my interest in looking into this. So I, I appreciate that. Glad to hear it. Uh, I I mean, if if I'm going to come on your podcast as a guest, I see it as my duty to give you license to do things that you already wanted to do. Awesome. I, I think I that's it. just good guest behavior. Yeah. All right, man. Uh, let's get to some Q and A's, and then we'll then we'll wrap it up for the day. Let's do it. How does that sound? Um, I'll, I'll go ahead and knock out a couple of mine, and then you can do yours after that. Sounds good. So uh, I got a question from somebody, and by the way, if you're like listening to see if your question is getting answered here, 
I go back to the original spreadsheet for these because I, I stockpiled a bunch of questions. So I might be answering questions that were asked like, I don't know, in Obama's first term. Uh, that's kind of the time frame I'm working with here. But anyway, this one is from Greg's Brownie Recipe. Uh, the question is, is there any validity to the idea that athletes should avoid using things like non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs or fish oil in order to better realize training adaptations? And you see, Greg, that's what separates the permanent hosts from the temporary hosts, is that I tied that in to my research review. We got the fish oil in the question. I've been saving this all along. So for young, healthy folks... Uh, it's probably not a bad idea to avoid regular use of high-dose non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs. Uh, when we implement training and we induce a training stimulus, there are some aspects of acute inflammatory processes that seem to be part of the remodeling and adaptation process. Uh, so there are some studies indicating that for young, healthy folks, regular use of high-dose non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs can blunt training adaptations to an extent. Uh, similar evidence exists for high-dose use of vitamin C and vitamin E. Uh, so these are obviously antioxidants. Um, the thing that's interesting, though, about the antioxidant component is that from the data we have available, which is not much, that effect with vitamin C and vitamin E does not seem to be as big of a deal with phytochemicals with antioxidant properties. So like, you know, people use different like uh, polyphenol rich, you know, blueberry extract or pomegranate extract or things like that. And a lot of those uh, antioxidant phytochemicals mechanistically reduce oxidative stress by distinct uh, mechanisms rather than something like vitamin C or E that do it uh, much more directly uh, when you look at the, the biochemical process of uh, reducing oxidative stress. So there are some mechanistic distinctions there. Uh, you know, some of these are directly scavenging um, free radicals. Some of these are actually working through uh, like NERF2 and, and enzymatic reactions. So it's not as big a deal with plant-based antioxidant phytochemicals. And one of the really challenging things with limiting this antioxidant stuff is antioxidants within certain dosing ranges can be really nice if you're taking like a nitric oxide booster because nitric oxide is very unstable, has a short half-life. And if you take an antioxidant with a nitric oxide booster, a lot of the nitric oxide, instead of getting converted to peroxynitrite, which is unfavorable, it'll get pushed toward other pathways of nitric oxide recycling, for lack of a better term. So you can extend the bioactivity and the half-life of nitric oxide by pairing a nitric oxide booster with an antioxidant. And a lot of times that just happens. If you think about like citrulline being naturally present in watermelon or nitrate being naturally naturally present in beet juice or spinach, you know, there, there's plenty of these phytonutrient antioxidants that are present within the food or the beverage matrix. Uh, so you don't want to go, you know, 1000 milligrams vitamin C as your typical pre-workout. But there can be some benefit of lower doses of antioxidants if 
you're trying to extend uh, the bioactivity of nitric oxide. Now, one of the interesting things that's on the horizon here is antihistamines. I have seen some very preliminary evidence with emerging data that warrants some consideration. I have seen evidence that antihistamines taken at high doses could potentially have similar effects as like taking the high-dose antioxidants or the high-dose non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs. I've only seen one or two papers, so I'm not ready to like lean into it super hard, but keep that on the on the horizon. I know, Greg, you are you are sweating in your chair right now. Dude, just imagine how fucking big I would be <laughs> if I didn't have uh, fucking life-threatening seasonal allergies. <laughs> yeah. I'm allergic to everything. We, we should look more into that paper. It came out very recently. I'll send it to you. But they used two very specific antihistamines that were not antihistamines that I ever use regularly. It wasn't like uh, it wasn't like loratadine. It wasn't um, cetirizine. Yeah, it, it was. Yeah, it wasn't that wasn't Benadryl. I don't know if they used uh, Benadryl or not. I'll have to look into that. But uh, but that's something to to just keep on the horizon. A non-specific worry to keep you up at night. <laughs> and, and we'll we'll revisit that topic when we have an opportunity to do so. A nothing can keep me up at night, and I resent the implication. Uh, B I as soon as we get done recording this, I'm scheduling another round of allergy shots. Really? No, not really. Oh. I don't want to deal with the fucking u.s healthcare system okay here's a bad news segment okay. uh, we're, we're gonna we're gonna slot this in so as as dedicated listeners to this podcast know i broke my wrist a while back correct i had exactly two doctor's visits about that uh i went to urgent care they took an x-ray they gave me a little brace uh that was fine and then i went to uh uh, in orthopedic. Um, and he basically, he didn't do shit. Uh, he saw me for three minutes and was just like, yeah, uh, just like, don't do much with your wrist for a while. See me in a month. Uh, <laughs> and he, he was like, oh yeah, the, uh, avulsion fracture you have, like, it'll probably heal on its own. So like, yeah, come see me in a month. We can take more x-rays, like see if it has done that. I'm like, but if it hasn't, what are you going to do? Like, what's the treatment then? He's like, ah, well, there won't really be much we can do. And I was like, so why do I need to see you again in a month? He was like, ah, you just need to do it. So anyway, yeah. on the way out, I, I canceled. The, He's got a boat payment coming up. Yeah, I, I canceled yeah. the return visit. Um, <laughs> so anyway, I had a grand total of two visits about that. Yeah. When I got home, uh, there was there was a bill from urgent care uh, for like 300 bucks or something. I paid that and I was like, okay, I have one more bill coming uh, from from the orthopedic. So I was like, okay, this is fine. For some reason, I don't know how. I haven't looked into the details yet. I have six goddamn healthcare bills <laughs> on the island downstairs for various shit. And like, yeah. even if you itemize everything that was done to me, like... If, if you assume there's a separate bill for the x-ray and there's a separate bill for the splint they put me in and there's a separate bill for whatever, like I, I came up with a grand total of four things, <laughs> four discrete things that maybe I could have separate bills for. And I've already paid one and I have six left. I, I got seven fucking bills for two visits. I don't know how. 
I, di- I, di- I didn't think that was possible. All of which is to say, I spent over a decade of my life never interfacing with the American <laughs> healthcare system because it's so fucked. Like from, uh, from 17 to 29, I did not go to the doctor yeah. for, for anything. I break my wrist and I get seven fucking bills for what amounted to basically nothing. Dude, I don't care if getting allergy shots and going off antihistamines would turn me into the second coming of Ronnie Coleman. I am never interfacing with the American healthcare system again unless it's life-threatening. Yeah. It's, it's so bad. The way they itemize things, like um, when they're like, walking out the door after seeing you they'll be like all right man good luck like take care and you'll get a bill for like emotional support therapy and they're like dude i added that therapy at the end i told you to like have a good day and well like- it, it, it wasn't like itemized stuff on one bill we're talking seven discrete bills yeah, yeah. from different companies like there's different letterhead on top of all yeah. of them i don't know how that's possible when i it's um, ridiculous when, yeah when when i uh got my fake cancer diagnosis <laughs> So before it was allegedly cancer, they were like, oh, well, I mean, it could be cancer, but it also could be something that is acutely very dangerous. Like if it is this alternative diagnosis, you need surgery tonight uh, and we need to do imaging to to rule that out. And I was very, very, very poor, very poor. And I said, okay, um, how much is that going to cost? Is this like the type of thing I'm going to be paying off in 10 years? And uh, they're like, honestly, I couldn't even begin to give you a ballpark figure. And I was like, no, I don't need a, a I don't need an exact price, but tell me, is it, is this a hundred, a thousand, 10,000 or a hundred thousand, you know, A, B, C or D. And they're like, dude, I honestly couldn't even begin to try to put, and they're like the next person in this, this, uh, the next person I send you to will be able to give you an estimate. I go to the next person and they're same thing. Couldn't even put me within an order of magnitude of the cost. And they're like, no, the next person will tell you. So all of a sudden I'm on the table for the imaging and I'm like, everyone keeps telling me the next person will tell me if this, if this procedure is going to fundamentally change the next 10 years of my financial life. Do you have the answer? She's like, absolutely not. I have no idea. Do you want it or not? And like it, yeah, it was a disaster. Uh, and then I, I got the same thing, a million different bills. Uh, I paid the bill and then they adjusted it after the fact. And they were like, actually, there's more that you owe. That's sick. That's yeah. so cool. Yeah, I paid the bill in full. And they're like, we actually, uh, we told you a number. We changed our mind. You owe more now for the same thing. Uh, so maybe you'll get six more in a couple months. You know, th- the last thing I'm going to say about this is as frustrating as this has been, I'm just glad that we have the freedom that we have I agree. with the private healthcare system in the U S and you know, it's, I, I certainly feel far more free than I would if, if the government was running it for sure. I, I agree for sure. So, uh, anyway, getting back to the question, <laughs> so, uh, sorry for the impromptu <laughs> bad news segment. <laughs> See, this is why we had to cancel the good news segment. Um, so, Non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs, high-dose vitamin C or E, high-dose antihistamines, probably don't want to be taking them unless you really need them. And sometimes you do. You know, sometimes the benefit of the antihistamine or the benefit of the the non-steroidal anti-inflammatory 
exceeds the cost of potentially blunting training adaptations for a short period of time. Uh, but as I mentioned previously, fish oil, no reason to avoid it with regards to training adaptations. It's just probably not going to help a ton. I think uh, fish oil's effect is either going to be neutral or just the slightest positive effect that won't matter uh, at all because it's such a small magnitude. Um, now, if you're an old... It, it, so what we see with aging in, in older adults is that kind of baseline uh, inflammatory status, baseline oxidative stress, they tend to increase as we age, especially as we get into our 50s, 60s, 70s, and beyond. So if you're... Uh, if you're if you're if you're in a state where you have kind of increased baseline inflammation, either due to aging or some other um, uh, you know medical reason for that increased baseline inflammation, then throw all those recommendations out the window, uh, because in some cases, uh, you know, doing something like a high dose antioxidant or a non steroidal anti-inflammatory drug in the presence of elevated baseline inflammation could have a neutral or even slightly positive effect on training adaptation. So it's kind of contextually dependent there, but but that's uh, that would be my answer to the question as asked. Um, now, moving on, I've got uh, two questions that I'm kind of putting together here. Matt Raines asked about the OMAD diet, which is one meal a day, correct? Uh, what what are my thoughts on that? And Shilov asked, uh, is it important to get protein and leucine right before sleep to continue muscle protein synthesis throughout the night? So the reason I put these together is because the, obviously they, they both relate to protein distribution throughout the day. Uh, so let's start with one meal a day. Um, we recently saw a pretty good how-to video for that, right? We did. We, we learned a lot from it, but not the kind of learning you want. Uh, <laughs> We learned about like what happens if you combine every possible meat in your refrigerator, ranging from fish to hot dogs, in a single meal, uh, which is not what you want to do for health. For, for health, yeah. <laughs> hot dogs for health. <laughs> no, so we we watched a video where it was somebody who's like, "Hey, I eat one meal a day. Watch me eat my meal," and literally the the entire explanation of the contents of the meal was like. Well, because I only eat one meal a day, it makes my life way worse and I have all these problems I have to solve. So here is my solution to the problems I created by only eating one meal a day. So like every aspect of the diet was an adjustment for the fact that it's, it's such a horrifically inconvenient way to eat. Um, but anyway, so to give a, a, a more neutral assessment... <laughs> If you're eating one meal a day because it's the only thing that fits with your busy schedule, uh, it fits your personal eating preferences, um, you're able to feel good throughout the day, you know, you don't have like huge energy crashes, you're not feeling shaky after a while, um, you know, if you're able to sustain one meal a day, it fits your preferences, that's fine, like there, there's nothing wrong with it, um, I, I don't think it's ideal. Uh, because it, it's not a great way to distribute your protein if you're interested in supporting muscle protein synthesis and hypertrophy over time. Um, there is a temporal aspect to protein consumption. And looking at the meal frequency literature and looking at the acute feeding studies, it looks like you probably want to get, you know, 
0.25, maybe 0.3 grams per kilogram of protein at at least three separate meals throughout the day in order to support muscle protein synthesis. Like that, that's kind of the lower end of what we're seeing in studies that seem to successfully promote hypertrophy in conjunction with resistance training. Does that mean you can't make any gains eating one meal a day? Of course not. I, I just don't think it's the optimal way to distribute your protein. Um, and one, uh, you know, to be uh, fair and balanced, one benefit of adopting this approach is if you are someone who struggles with hunger and it's hard to restrict calories and that process becomes more manageable when you reduce meal frequency pretty aggressively, it's, I, I, I'm certain it's very possible that a lot of people will find it more manageable to reduce their calorie intake by doing one meal a day. Uh, I also find it very plausible that some people might go the other direction. And because of the severe restriction, by the time they get to their one meal of the day, they might be absolutely starving and potentially even overcompensate, uh, depending on what kind of food sources they're selecting. You know, if they're, if they're selecting really calorie dense, uh, low satiety food sources, that could potentially be a, a rough scenario. So one meal a day, it, it's, it's not like it's, you know, the worst thing you could possibly do, but I, I certainly don't think it's optimal for protein distribution. And the question is, if you're going to be training, when are you training? uh, with one meal a day, uh, maybe you're training after a, you know, 22 hour fast and, and then you're eating your one meal a day post-workout or, I mean, I, I can't imagine that you're training short after one meal a day. Cause like, dude, I'm not going to train with a 3000 calorie meal in my stomach. Like I, that'd be awful to me. Uh, so I, I don't know where you're putting your training here. I, I think even just going from one meal a day to two makes it a much more manageable eating schedule throughout the day, especially when you consider being in a position to train in a well-fueled state, but also being in a position to provide nutrients at some point post-workout. Uh, now, the other question was about sleep uh, and protein before bed. Um, nighttime is a great opportunity to get one of your protein feedings for the day. And like I said, you probably want at least three distinct protein feedings throughout the day. I used to recommend three to five uh, based on some of the literature looking at temporal aspects of stimulating muscle protein synthesis. I reviewed a paper recently that compared three versus six meals a day, and there was no difference. They were very, very similar in terms of outcomes. So I've extended my recommended window from three to five up to three to six, uh, you know, just staying, uh, staying flexible as the evidence comes in. Uh, I have no specific reason to believe that seven meals a day is necessarily worse, but it does start to get a little tedious when you're eating every couple hours. And there are studies looking at specific pulsing strategies where doing like eight small protein feedings was not as effective as doing like three uh, bigger protein feedings over a similar time window. So there is evidence in humans looking at protein synthesis that would indicate that at some point uh, you start to lose out on the ultra-frequent small protein pulses. But um, but yeah, I'd say three to six meals per day. If one of them happens to be before bed, that's that's a totally viable time to eat protein. Um, it, you don't have to eat right before bed. But uh, if you do eat before bed and have a protein serving there, you want to make sure that what you're eating isn't going to upset your stomach. Some people really disturb their sleep if they eat right before bed. Uh, even if they have a big protein shake right before bed, some people uh, struggle to sleep on a full stomach. 
or, or they, you know, wake up throughout the night or wake up with a stomach ache. So you want to avoid that. And there's also some interesting evidence related to, uh, so, uh, Greg, correct me if I'm wrong, but I'm pretty sure branch chain amino acids and tryptophan have some competition with regards to the brain, correct? That's what I've heard. So I've seen some interesting literature indicating or suggesting that a huge influx of branch chain amino acids right before bed could lead to some disruption regarding the quantity or the quality of sleep because of that competitive effect with tryptophan. Uh, And so maybe you could use that to make the argument that you shouldn't have like an essential amino acid supplement or a branch chain amino acid supplement right before bed. Maybe that extends to a very rapidly digesting protein like whey. I personally, I have whey protein before bed all the time. It's never been an issue and I have had sleeping issues in the past. So maybe don't take a huge serving of branch chain amino acids right before bed, but even with a fast digesting protein like whey, it's not something that's bothered me personally in the past, but it is uh, a suggestion that I'm at least aware of and worth considering, you know, when you're thinking about this. Makes sense to me. All right, Greg, you got a couple questions, right? I do. So I have one from Annie Palladino. Uh, So Annie asks, let's say you're designing a training program for older folks, parentheses 60 plus, uh, with no prior training history. Goals are maintaining or improving daily functioning and mitigating bone slash muscle loss. Assuming no limits on access to equipment, which exercises do you build the program around? either from an evidence-based perspective or from a personal experience slash preferences perspective. Uh, So yeah, I I think that's a great question. Um, So, I mean, obviously the answer is squat bench deadlift. uh, Would you do threes or fives? I would stick to fives because that offers the optimal balance of strength, hypertrophy, and endurance. (laughs) Endurance, good. Uh, Oh, man. Yeah, not going to get into that. Anyway, um, yeah, no, no. So uh, I would probably start with a combination of bodyweight exercises and machine exercises. Um, The machine exercises, just because when you're dealing with people 60 plus, and and we're, you know, I'm kind of assuming just uh, an average 65 year old, no prior training experience, probably not in great shape. Uh, mid sixties can look very different for different people. Uh, there are people in their mid sixties who are still in excellent shape. And there are people in their mid sixties with one and a half feet in the grave. So, you know, sixties, I would say like fifties and sixties are probably the most physiologically varied decades that exist uh if you say like oh what are you gonna do for a 30 year old you have an idea of what's going on you ask how what are you gonna do for an 80 year old you got a pretty good idea of what's going on 50 60 year olds 40 year olds anywhere within that range boy that could mean so many different things dude i I saw a picture the other day of tom cruise Mm -hmm. he was um i guess Back in the day, he did a movie, and there was like a kid that was a main character in the movie, mm-hmm. and there was a picture of them, and Tom Cruise is like a thirty-something-year-old man, and the kid is like six. Yeah, the kid looks older than Tom Cruise now. It's insane. 
like like you said, like people start getting into their fifties and sixties, and some people just do not age in those decades. It's wild. G- getting audited uh, by this Church of Scientology is scientifically proven to lengthen your telomeres. Wow. So Tom Cruise might physically still be in his twenties. Sweet. Uh, that's not true. Anyway, so uh, yeah, so we're. I'm just gonna assume someone who's who's probably not in great shape. Uh, so yeah, I, I would start with a m- mixture of body weight exercises and machine exercises. The machine exercises, primarily, just so uh, some we we can have some things going on with really really low stability requirements, so you can stress the muscles pretty hard. And when it comes to maintaining uh, bone mineral density and bone health, most of the forces on your bones that you're dealing with are actually compressive forces from muscle contraction. Um, So, yeah, I mean, anything that's going to let them contract their muscles pretty hard is probably going to be a pretty decent option to start with. Uh, And, you know, machines, very small learning curve, pretty easy to get into. Uh, and then body weight exercises because, uh, you know, once people start hitting their 50s, 60s, especially late 60s into 70s, uh, balance starts becoming a much bigger issue. Um, so building and maintaining and improving kinesthetic awareness and just control of your body through space is really, really important. Um, we're We're elderly people get into a lot of trouble is when either they have an unstable base of support or when say like they're reaching uh, and and their center of mass is getting close to the edge of just one foot instead of having a solid two foot base of support. So ideally you want to get to, to a place with them where that's not as scary and that's not as potentially problematic. So you know, the body weight stuff is probably going to start very, very simple. So just like body weight box squats. But if you can get them to the point where they can do even like fairly low strict step ups where they're supporting themselves and balancing on one foot for a decent bit of time or uh, lunges. So they have a pretty wide base of support, but maybe not a ton of lateral stability. So they have to activate their ankles, activate their hips to stabilize themselves. So, you know, starting with a very, very small step lunge and then progressing to kind of wider and wider stances, more and more in line, things like that are going to help with balance. Uh, Just improving quad strength and calf strength helps a lot. Um, So uh, improving calf strength helps a lot with balance and then quad strength that's that's one of the first things that goes with elderly people that really really impacts activities of daily living specifically just being able to stand up and walk upstairs quad strength seems to go pretty quick and go in a pretty big way uh so you know certainly going to going to be doing probably largely machine exercises to start with to train the quads and the calves and then basically we're we're primarily using machines to build muscle, build strength, and primarily using body weight, primarily just mostly for balance stuff. Like there's still probably going to be some degree of strength and hypertrophic stimulus, but mostly just improving their ability to manipulate their own body mass through space and and control and balance themselves. Uh, And then, I mean, 
from there, it's just a matter of, of where they go and how they progress. Uh, you know, within a couple months, they very well could be capable of doing just about anything anyone else in the gym would want to do. Or, you know, if they've just aged faster than average and life has been pretty rough on them so far, maybe maybe you're just going to be doing mostly machine stuff and what what to the outside perspective would look like pretty easy bodyweight stuff, but to them would be pretty challenging bodyweight stuff. So, you know, the, I, I would start with bodyweight stuff and machines and then progression from there. just based on on how quickly and how well they respond to training uh so yeah that's that's how i would approach it uh in in terms of the skills that are going to matter the most for maintaining activities of daily living um you want to have the strength and also the balance to manipulate objects at various levels so being able to pick stuff up off the ground and also you know probably doing some pressing stuff so they can control and manipulate things above their head because that's where people tend to get themselves in trouble. Reaching up to grab something or, you know, being either unable to pick something up off the ground or losing balance when they do so. So those would be skills we'd work on. And then again, just quad strength for standing up out of chairs, being able to go upstairs, stuff like that. Um, So yeah, Hopefully that answers that question. Uh, And then a non-training related one from Peter Herguth. Uh, Peter asks, uh, or he says, I saw a recent post from a friend that the Dunning-Kruger effect may be an artifact or result of a poorly designed study for various reasons. What is your take on this? So uh, I have not dug into the methodology of kind of the seminal Dunning-Kruger effect study uh, sufficiently to have a strong opinion about the methodology, but I wanted to address this question because I wanted to address the interpretation of the Dunning-Kruger effect that's going around. Uh, I think basically we're dealing with a meta-Dunning-Kruger effect. Oh, wow. Where people have, where people are exhibiting the Dunning-Kruger effect as it relates to what the Dunning-Kruger effect actually is. So when I see people discuss the Dunning-Kruger effect, I often see them share a, a graphic, like an illustration that shows confidence uh, as a function of competence. And so when they start off, they have really no confidence in what they're doing and, and no competence. But then as competence increases a little bit, confidence goes way, way up. And the the popular graphic there has that initial peak of confidence with relatively low competence labeled as Mount Stupid. And you'll often see that bandied around as an insult. Like, oh, so-and-so, they have some hot takes, but they really don't know what they're talking about. They're just perched at the top of Mount Stupid. And then as the graphic progresses further to the right... Uh, competence increases, knowledge increases, and then confidence starts sloping down again uh, off the back of Mount Stupid. And then as you start, you know, attaining expert status in whatever it is, uh, confidence in what you know starts going up again. So, you know, it's kind of like a an initial hump, then a downslope, and then an upslope in confidence again. And that's, that is the graphical representation of the Dunning-Kruger effect I see people sharing around. And, and the idea that I see people 
using the Dunning-Kruger to represent is people with low knowledge having more confidence in their take than people with much, much more knowledge uh, about a particular topic. The thing is, that is not what the Dunning-Kruger paper found. It found that there was a positive association between um, like knowledge and competence in the domains they were testing uh, and confidence. Uh, so as, as uh, expertise increases, performance on tests increased, and as expertise increased, confidence in your subject matter increased. And, and basically what they were doing is they were giving people tests and they were measuring how well they did on the test and they were asking people, how well did you think you did on the test? And people with low competence, low knowledge, did overestimate how well they did on the test. Like, you know, if they scored 60%, maybe they said like, yeah, I think I got a 70. And the people with really, really high competence, they scored maybe a 90 and they said, ah, I think I got an 85. So the the highly knowledgeable people were slightly underconfident and the low knowledge people were slightly overconfident. But the high knowledge people did predict that they did better than the low knowledge people predicted that they did. So like, so, so it's not like the, the people with expertise on the topic were looking at the people without it and going like, oh, I'm sure you know more than me. Like, this is very complex. I mean, they still thought like, I did pretty, pretty damn good on this. Well, yeah, yeah. I, like they, yeah, they, they did well and they thought they did well, but they did better than they thought they did. Right. Yeah. And the people who did poorly thought they did poorly. Yeah. But they thought they did a little bit better than they actually did. Like th that's what the results of that original study indicate. Like that is the Dunning-Kruger effect. People with low knowledge overestimate their competence but they don't estimate their competence to be greater than experts. Yeah. So, like, the thing is, the, that graphical representation, I think that does probably apply to some people. Like, you see some absolute knuckle-draggers uh, really, really confident in their really stupid takes. Like, that, Yeah, that, you see plenty of that. That yeah. does happen to people, but that that is not what occurs on average. Like, most people who don't know much about a topic recognize that they don't know much about the topic, but they might overestimate themselves a little bit. Yeah. And people who know a lot about the topic know they know a lot about the topic, but they might underestimate themselves a little bit. Like that that is the Dunning-Kruger effect. Um so anyway. That's interesting. I I yeah, I've never heard that. So the the Dunning-Kruger effect, I, I think people are Dunning-Krugering the Dunning-Kruger effect. Uh they they have yeah. a they are they are misestimating their competence in the subject matter of the Dunning Kruger effect. <laughs> you know, one thing that is really interesting. Hopefully, I can get that link uh, in the show notes. Um, you shared something in the Stronger by Science Facebook page today, I believe, mm -hmm. that was um, somewhat related to this because um, they were asking, like, "Hey, is is the Dunning Kruger effect just like a bad study design, you know, that that's not actually, you know, robust and reliable. You shared a link, I believe, to a website that goes through a bunch of different concepts in psychology mm -hmm. that are popularly accepted 
mm-hmm. and kind of known to be things that exist in psychology, uh, but upon further review have actually been kind of, uh, they just haven't replicated and the field is kind of acknowledged like, yeah, that's that's not actually how psychology works in real life. Mm-hmm. Uh, I thought that was really fascinating. It, it kind of goes to the same uh, to the same place this question was getting at. Um, and man, there was an extensive list of, uh, what are you showing me here? I'm showing you the figure from the, well, one of the figures from the actual paper. Oh yeah. Yeah. That is not what you see when people talk about the Dunning-Kruger effect. Yeah. We we can put the link in the show notes. Yeah. But yeah, you, you shared that other link that talks about all these different things that like someone like me, who's just like a lay person who doesn't know anything about psychology. I took like psych 101. It's like, oh, these there's like first day psych 101 stuff like, oh, we know about this. We know about that. And there are these big reversals in psychology where I think psychology is is trending toward being a lot more rigorous with their work. Uh, and people in the field currently will probably roll their eyes and say uh, <laughs> trending uh, very slowly. But um, but yeah, it, it's really fascinating to kind of revisit some of those topics we accept as fact and then say, actually, Upon further review, there's there's a lot more to consider here. So I'll put that link in the show notes if you're just kind of casually interested in psychology. It's it's worth a read. It's pretty cool. Yeah, and uh, and shout out to James Heathers. He is the person I saw sharing it on Twitter. And so, uh, I mean, if you're if you're interested in uh, dodgy psychology or just meta science in general, James Heathers is a very solid follow, both on Twitter and Medium. You should check out his stuff. Yeah, but but if you listen to this show, then there's a high likelihood that you're sensitive to vulgarities. So probably a warning. Uh, James has been known to use foul language that you're never going to hear on this show as a family show. Um, okay, to play us out, um, I've got something a little bit off topic here. It's sport related. Just to give a background, uh, when I was a kid, I was really into baseball. I loved playing uh, and I grew up... Uh, the the town I lived in, uh, there was a pro baseball team and they were in the NL Central. Okay, so at the time, Mark McGuire played for the Cardinals and Sammy Sosa played for the Cubs. And when I was a kid, Mark McGuire and Sosa were in town. It felt like every couple weeks. And this was when they were both hitting like 65, 70 homers like that year. Uh, so like my experience as a kid, as a baseball fan was just, it was outrageous. It was, it was completely unfair because my idea of going down to the ballpark for a game was like, let's go watch Mark, Mark McGuire hit his, you know, 68th homer this year and just all the pandemonium surrounding that home run race. So all of that is to say, it's been really hard for me to get back into baseball lately it just hasn't been as interesting as that insanely interesting and exciting era of baseball. But there is a feat of insanity happening currently. And Greg, you actually brought this to my attention when we were hanging out the other day. Um, Shohei Otani. He is a very, very good pitcher. And we were watching some of his pitching highlights. He's got some really good stuff. And if you're not familiar with baseball, uh, was it? I think it's the. Is it the American League or the National League that that has designated hitters? 
American League. American League. So basically, a long time ago in the sport, they're like, listen, pitchers, they're good at pitching, but it's such a specialized skill. They're all terrible at hitting, and it's boring. So can we just have someone else hit instead of the pitcher? Uh, Like, pitchers sucking at hitting is a widely enough known, repeatable enough trend that half of the league basically decided, let's not put ourselves through watching these pitchers try to hit. Uh, Now, Shohei Otani, like I said, is a very skilled pitcher. He's like at the top of the league home run leaderboard. Like he's, I saw he dropped to like number two or three the other day, but like at certain points throughout the season, he has been the home run leader. Uh, I saw. Yeah, he he's currently tied again. Yeah. So I saw the other day he (laughs) he hit a double, a triple, and a homer with a stolen base. Um, like he is an absolute top notch, as good as anybody hitter while also being an extremely solid pitcher. Uh, So what he's doing right now is just absolutely unfathomable. And it's not a feat of strength, but it's a feat of skill that is arguably without precedent. I mean, it it is really remarkable what he's doing. And I saw, um, you know, I'm a stats guy. I saw his ERA dropped from 37.8 last year to 2.85 this year. So if you extrapolate that trend, and I think you should, uh, it's going to be interesting in a couple years to see what his ERA is. Um, obviously, last year it was a fluke. He like pitched a couple at innings and got rocked and then got hurt and, and couldn't play for a while. But uh, anyway, just insane what he's doing. Really, really cool to see. And I'm just stoked that baseball is becoming interesting again. Uh, they've got some interesting uh, personalities in the sport. They've got some really great uh, athletes that are just fun to watch right now. And they've got a cheating scandal, which is my bread and butter. And it's a cheating scandal with a Raleigh connection. Yeah, and a lifting connection. Yeah. So, uh, you know, when I was a kid, you know, everybody was doing all the steroids, but man, was it fun. I mean, they were knocking the ball out of the park like crazy. And now, Greg, like you said, uh, you want to explain those connections to the current cheating? Yeah, yeah. So the, the current cheating scandal, which they just started cracking down on maybe like two, three weeks ago was, uh, and this is something pitchers have been doing forever. They, they use sticky substances to get a better grip on the ball, uh, which they they have claimed is so they can control their pitches better, but uh, at least certainly over the last few years, once spin rates and how to just craft in the lab a nasty breaking pitch, once that's become better understood, people are using stickier and stickier substances to up their spin rate, uh, increase movement on their breaking pitches, uh, have less drop on their fastball. So like to the hitter, it looks like it rises. So they undercut all of the fastballs and either just whiff or pop them up. Uh, high spin rate can do some nasty shit to a baseball. And the stickier your fingers are, the more spin you can put on a ball. Uh, and so there, there has apparently been just an arms race to try to find the best sticky substances to throw the nastiest pitches possible. And some of the teams allegedly have in-house chemists that are trying to devise the best sticky substance possible for pitching. Uh, but there was a test that like some some independent uh, like pitching researchers, I guess, um, where, where they tested out 
several known sticky substances that uh, some ba- that baseball players have been using forever. So like a mixture of sweat and rosin, uh, then the the OG illegal sticky substance of pine tar, and then some newfangled stuff that people have gotten caught with, one of which is spider tack, owned by uh, James Deffenball from Spider Strength Gym, Raleigh, Friend North of the Carolina. show. He was on the Friend podcast. Friend of the show. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, it's, it's tacky for doing like stones for strongman. Uh, and it is apparently the best tacky <laughs> in the world as verified by baseball. Um, so yeah, they, they found that spider tack increased spin rate more than any other non-crazy proprietary substance. And so like if you just Google spider tack now... You'll find a bunch of fucking losers and nerds complaining that, <laughs> oh, this stuff is too good. It makes pitchers unhittable. Fuck you, man. Like, if if I see a dude who's throwing 98-mile-an-hour heat that also has a curveball that drops two feet off the table and has, like, a slider that breaks a foot and a half away from a right-handed hitter and a cutter that breaks eight inches towards a right-handed hitter, and the tunneling of those pitches looks the same until it's halfway to home plate, that's fucking sick. That is so cool to watch. Uh, So anyway, I think James is a true American hero, and I think the nerds who are trying to ruin baseball need to get out of it. Uh, And so, you know, uh, so they're cracking down on on the sticky substances now, very dumb, very bad. Because they're saying, so league-wide batting average is the lowest it's ever been in the live ball era. And they're saying like, oh, that's bad. People on TV, they like to see offense, blah, blah, blah. We need to make the pitchers worse. No. Bring steroids back. Yeah. Give all of the, make the pitchers <laughs> use spider tack and make the hitters use steroids. <laughs> that is the recipe for awesome baseball <laughs> do you think they're gonna pull the 90s thing all over again and have uh james in front of congress <laughs> <laughs> if he spends six months on it if, if he's our generation's victor conti <laughs> oh man and by and, the way and, and, and spider tack is our generation's the cream and the clear yeah i mean just to be clear i mean it's not james's fault it's not like you're gonna spell sell spider tech and like license it like oh what are you using this for you know you got to fill out the application i mean it's not his fault that people are <laughs> you know just throwing these nasty curveballs but dude i saw a video um on instagram that it, you, you use like really high speed cameras and it was a pitcher it superimposed the video of the pitcher throwing two different pitches in a game and one was a, a fastball the other was a breaking ball Dude, these things, you know, you pitch from what, 60 and a half feet? Yeah. These things went 30 feet. Literally, the ball path was identical, like fully identical. The release point, the trajectory. And then in the last, like, at the very last second, this pitch just falls off the table and the fastball just keeps on going. Like, you know, with with hitting, people say it's so hard because you have such limited reaction time. They're like they're cutting their reaction time in half, man. These these pitches, they're breaking so severely, so late in the pitch. I just can't imagine how you even try to hit it. Well, yeah, and the uh, for for people who have a 
very fast fastball and just those disgusting, nasty breaking pitches, the whole approach to pitching has changed. So, like, I grew up uh, in the 90s as a big Braves fan uh, when Greg Maddox was dominating the league with, like, an 81-mile-an-hour fastball. That's only a slight exaggeration. Uh, and and the name of the game to be a dominant pitcher, uh, if your name wasn't Pedro Martinez, was to just, like, have insane control. You know, the the umpires back then were give were calling people strikes like a foot a foot off the outside corner of the plate. They were kind of liberal with some of those strike calls, but the 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 name of the game was keep the ball low, keep it outside and like if you could do that, you could have a really nice career uh even if you didn't have just really really nasty stuff. Um but these days like p- people are throwing harder and, and like I said, they're designing breaking pitches in the lab with high-speed cameras and pitching coaches who can, like, figure out how to get get the spin, like, one more revolution on the way to home plate and, like, get it to spin over the exact right axis to break at the angle you want. And so now the name of the game, instead of painting the, the, the bottom, like, low and away, it's less a control game and more just a do you have nasty shit game. Yeah. Uh, Cause if you have, you know, if you have a high 90s fastball and then you have a slider in the low 90s and a cutter in the low 90s or like a sinker in the low 90s and all of those balls come out of your hand looking the exact same way, you can just throw right down the middle of the plate. And it doesn't matter your location because you're essentially just asking the batter to guess, you know? It's like penalty kicks in soccer where the the goalie just has to go, ah, I'm feeling like this one's going left. Yeah, and it's it's incredible. Um, I don't know. I I like it a lot. I think it's really cool. Yeah. So, you know, big props to baseball for becoming interesting again in just all the worst ways that they wish they could avoid. Yeah. all right, so that does it for this episode. No, it doesn't. I also wanted to talk about a baseball thing. I didn't put it on the outline, so you were unaware of that. Okay. Uh, so in addition to Shohei Otani setting the league on fire, uh, Jake DeGrom isn't getting as many headlines because he's not also... Tell him to hit 30 homers. Well, he's not also <laughs> tied for, for the lead in dingers. Uh but he's ha- he's in the middle of maybe the best pitching season ever. Uh, so, you know, they're about midway through the season. And uh, his ERA is sitting at .69, uh, which has never been done before. The, the lowest ERA for a season ever was .711. Uh, and that, that was like 1937 that was during the dead ball era during the live ball era the lowest era ever was bob gibson uh at 1.123 in 1968 the year of the pitcher and pitchers were so dominant that year they had to lower the mound just to give batters a chance the next season um and so jake Degrom is I, i mean they're midway through the season if he keeps up his torrid pace which he probably won't but like Unless he just falls off the table, he might break Bob Gibson's live ball era record. Uh, and it's actually even more impressive than that just because like the current scoring environment is so much greater than it was back then. Um, 
So there's a stat for the nerds called ERA plus, which is basically it's kind of like an ERA Z score. I think it's it's basically like how many standard deviations better is your ERA than than league average. And so Bob Gibson's ERA plus in 1968 was 258, which is incredible. Like he prevented people from scoring runs. Uh, at at two basically 2.6 standard deviations better than average, which is nasty. Uh, but they're scoring like twice as many runs now as they were in 1968. So Degrom's ERA plus is currently 551, which uh, so f- five and a half standard deviations. Yeah. Oh my which god. Is, which is absolutely disgusting. Uh, so, I mean, yeah, I mean, if, if you if you're looking at your data set and you see a, a single value that's five standard deviations off, you check it. You say, oh, we might have entered the wrong number. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So some of the underlying metrics suggest that he's gotten a little bit lucky so far this year. So there's there's a stat again for the nerds, like the the rate at which hitters really get their barrel on the bat, uh, so like hard hit balls. And I mean, he's still way above average for that stat, but like. It's more in line with how his numbers have looked the rest of his career. So he's probably gotten a little bit lucky so far. But even if he falls back to earth a little bit over the back half of the season, he he could still post an ERA below one, which would be outrageous. So, like, they very rarely give pitchers league MVP awards uh, just because, like, yeah, that's mostly reserved for for position players. I think Clayton Kershaw won one maybe, like, in 2014. But generally, that goes to position players because, like, pitchers have the Cy Young. That's basically the MVP award for pitchers. Uh, but it's entirely possible that Shohei Otani could win the AL MVP and DeGrom could win the NL MVP and just have pitchers sweep both MVP awards, which I don't think has ever been done before. But, uh, man, it's a crazy year for pitchers in baseball overall, uh, and especially Otani and DeGrom. And uh, I think we largely have James to thank for that. So, once again, thank you to friend of the show, James Deffenball. Look at us, Greg. Couple, uh, couple American blokes talking baseball with the Fourth of July coming up. What a patriotic episode, Eric! I'm surprised that you're not more into baseball. Uh, I'm impatient. You know, I, I don't watch movies because they take too long. So the thing about baseball is, the more into baseball you get, the less of it you watch because it's like it's just R. It, it's a sport for nerds. Yeah. Uh, yeah, like there's so much data. It's so granular because they have uh, the stat, the I think it's called Statcast, whatever. They they have like high speed cameras watching everything. Yeah, everything can be quantified to such granular detail that uh, I mean, ever since Billy Bean, like the nerds have taken over the sport, yeah. and you know th- there are the purists that are like, ah, but what does my eye test tell me? But I mean, really, really, it's it's the nerds that run the show now. Uh, so yeah, I mean, if if you ever wanted to make, if you ever wanted to watch a sport that you could turn into like competitive statistics, it's baseball. Yeah, maybe I'll get into it when I'm older and like just develop a sports gambling problem. <laughs> uh, <laughs> it's only a problem if you lose. That's true. Um, but no, I mean, it, it's the only sport where I remember when I was a kid, you'd go to you'd go to a baseball game. 
and the old timers would be in the stands literally filling out their own scorecards. Like you will see a person in the stands documenting the game in pencil and paper. Mm-hmm. Like that's the nerd level of that sport. But um, <laughs> it's like, what are you doing with that? Are you going to submit that to the league and say, hey, that should have been a hit, not an error? Like, what are you doing? <laughs> um, but anyway, yeah. Um, yeah, if you, if you are celebrating the 4th of July this weekend, uh, you know, everybody out there, have fun. Uh, be careful. Fireworks are dangerous. You know, don't lose any digits. Uh, have fun. Uh, you know a good way to celebrate the 4th of July, Greg? What? Restocking your supplements at BulkSupplements.com. <laughs> That's, it's awesome. So go to BulkSupplements.com. The discount code is SBSPOD to save 5% off your big holiday order. Uh, that does it for this episode. As always, thank you for listening and we'll be back soon. Thank you for listening to the Stronger by Science podcast. If you enjoyed the podcast, be sure to sign up for our free newsletter to get concise breakdowns of relevant research, as well as 28 free training programs for all skill levels and all schedules. We hate spam just as much as you do, so we'll only email you when we have something really interesting to share with you. You can sign up for the free newsletter at strongerbyscience.com newsletter, or just go to the Stronger by Science homepage and click the free programs button at the top. If you want to join in on the Stronger by Science podcast conversation, be sure to check out our Facebook group and our subreddit. The links for both are provided in the description of today's episode. Finally, please remember that we are not medical doctors or registered dietitians. So before you make any changes to your exercise or nutrition habits, be sure to check with a qualified healthcare professional. Once again, thank you for listening, and we will be back soon with another episode of the Stronger by Science podcast.